I invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm sure many of us know uh, folks that just like to debate and discuss uh, without any real purpose attached to it. Uh, they can, uh, you know, just kick off arguments and engage in arguments and have all kinds of debates and discussions. And when you sort of ask, so what's the point of this? There really isn't a point. It's just, it's just a, a, a kill the time, pass the day, uh, generate, uh, generate frustration for people, whatever it might be. It has some reason, just not much practical value. And at the end of the day, sometimes people like that uh, can seem as if they've argued one side and then before they're done, they're over on the other side. And then they're back around because they're just really engaged in the debate. For them, there's not a fixed line between positions and they can just keep moving whatever direction they want to go. That is not the Apostle Paul. He has been engaging in a uh, really a, an argument with the folks at Corinth who have Began, begun to, to mangle really the message of the cross by trying to mix it together with the wisdom of the culture around it. And he's hit that head on through chapter one and then starts to talk about the ministry implications of it in chapter two. The way he went about doing God's work was built on the foundation of what that message is. And then he's confronted their tendency to exalt individuals and, and to make too much of the minister rather than the master and the ramifications that has on, on the nature of the church and how they're building the church or potentially uh, not building the church with any kind of permanence. It might, might seem good, appear to be successful, but when it gets to the judgment seat of Christ, it'll be consumed and go up in smoke. But at the last section we looked at, he clearly started to indicate that this isn't just like an intellectual discussion where we could all sit around and, and then end up going, well, you know, I just sort of agreed to disagree with you and, you know, to each his own way but that he actually starts to say that if you destroy the temple of God, God will destroy you. That you've set yourself against the very work of God, establishing his place and presence there at Corinth. And that's no insignificant issue. And now he comes, if I could use like a, something he would be completely foreign to, uh, but might sit back in the culture of ours, he comes to the altar call. And he basically says, the distinction between these two is so stark that you need to choose one way or the other. You cannot actually straddle this fence. And if you choose wrongly, the consequences are enormous to it. Look at chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'd like to read verses 18 to 20. 
Let no one deceive himself. If any man thinks among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. Here is his concern stated right up front at the beginning of verse 18, let no man deceive himself. He has, uh, and, and this actually shows up a few times in this book, he has a deep concern about the Corinthians, at least some at the Corinthians, that they have deceived themselves into thinking the positions that they're taking are acceptable or at least permissible. But in so doing, they've actually dropped a veil over their own eyes of deception, and it's wrapped up in their arrogance or pride. Notice the beginning or the, the next statement right after this in verse 18. If any man among you thinks that he is wise. So here's the self-deception. This person's thought thoughts about himself are, I'm wise. And Paul's going to go, you're actually not wise at all. That's the self-deception. And three times, actually, in this letter, Paul says something like this. If any man thinks himself, this case is thinks he's wise. In chapter 8, it's thinks he knows anything. In chapter 14, if any man thinks he is spiritual. So it seems to have been a, a, a pretty significant problem among some in the church at Corinth that their thoughts about themselves were radically out of step with what was really true. They thought they were wise. They thought they were knowledgeable. They thought they were spiritual. But in every case, Paul says, you, you've got it wrong. You've actually come to a wrong conclusion and, and that's the self-deception of it. In fact, I'd like to suggest that in these verses, there's at least three evidences of their self-deception. The first is what we see in verse 18. They think they can know wisdom apart from God. If any man thinks he is wise in this age. So they have the idea that they can achieve wisdom apart from God right? I think myself wise in this age, probably the idea of being according to the standards of this age or according to this world's wisdom. And the reason I say that is what he's been saying throughout the book. Look at chapter one, verse 20. In 120, he says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Look at chapter two and verse six. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. 
So in 118, when he says, thinks himself wise in this age, he's talking about the kind of wisdom that he has been targeting with his rebuke since chapter one, the wisdom of this world, the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of the rulers of this age. If you think you have that, then instead of you being wise, you need to recognize that that's actually a declaration of your own foolishness. It's an arrogance of their heart because the scriptures are clear that it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One brings understanding. That's what Proverbs 9.10 says. And, and, and the biblical, a consistent biblical witness is that unless you have a God-centered perspective of things, you cannot actually ever know it truly. Your knowledge is always going to be uh, twisted to some degree because you're missing the unifying center of it. You don't understand it in, in the sense of full wisdom. In fact, we already saw him make comment about that. Look at chapter two and verse 14, because it's important to, as, as he's coming to the end of three, he's sort of uh, putting the conclusion to what he's been saying. And what he's been saying, look at 14 of chapter two, but a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Right? This is, uh, this is a crucial uh, truth of God's word about the effect of sin on, on human understanding. Right? Sometimes people like to act as if uh, the effect of sin only comes up sort of to the neckline and doesn't impact between the ears. But the Bible will not grant that. Because, because understanding is an inner person reality and sin has corrupted the heart. So the interpretation of information, right? He looks at the information and he interprets it. That's what understanding is about. It's not just knowing information, it's understanding what that information is and how it integrates. And then wisdom is using that because of mankind's rebellion against God and exclusion of God's revelation and authority. Human understanding is always twisted. It won't come to the conclusion that is necessary to come to based on God's word. And, and that's why the constant tension in scripture is between someone who thinks he's wise in his own eyes or someone who leans on God's understanding, right? Whether we submit ourselves to the truth of God. And we, we have to understand that dynamic if we're going to navigate this world wisely because we cannot we cannot accept the, the, the premise that human thought apart from the revelation of God is, is fully trustworthy in this sense. 
It's always going to be turned interpretation away from the authority of God, away from the rule of God over mankind. And so if you think you're wise in this age, you've actually accepted a standard for wisdom that is fundamentally flawed. And we, I mean, it doesn't take much to see that today, right? I mean, people who call some positions sophisticated or wise or insightful, that is essentially uh, the equivalent of the emperor parading around naked with no clothes and everybody sort of patting him on the back, you know, because they don't want to go against the folly of it. And that's where our world is. And so their self-deception is to think that because they've got an acceptable wisdom by the world standards, that they're actually wise. And, and that's, that's foolishness and deception. Look at verse 19 of chapter 3. I think their self-deception is also evidenced by the fact that they, th- they think they can reject God's wisdom without penalty or consequence. Notice verse 19. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. This is a a quotation from the book of Job about God's judgment on those who've rejected his wisdom, the world's wisdom, right? Verse 19, the wisdom of this world, God condemns as foolishness because it it rejects the correct starting point, the divine perspective from which everything must be interpreted. And the irony in verse 19 is, is the very pursuit of this false wisdom, right? What people are pursuing, which they think will make them wise, is actually what's leading them into a trap. Right? So they, they think that they're finding liberty and they're actually walking into a prison of condemnation. That God actually catches them by their own devices. Their rejection of him isn't taking them to freedom. It's actually leading them into judgment that the consequences of it are going to come upon them. And this is this is exactly what Romans 1 talks about, right? They knew God as he was revealed, but they didn't honor God or glorify him as God, but but instead professing themselves to be wise, they became foolish. Right? In the pursuit of that, their believed wisdom led to continuing uh, degradation and greater enslavement, right? Every step that they thought was an improvement on God's created design, a, a better conception of things led farther and farther into condemnation and judgment. That's, that's what verse 19 is talking about, right? That God actually uses, he uses their wisdom to be the very thing that he catches them with because of condemnation. They've rejected God and pursued their own way, and that way leads to destruction. 
that it ultimately, uh, it ultimately, and here's again, why this is the character of self-deception. Every step along the way, they think they're headed toward freedom. They think they're headed toward enlightenment. They, they, they think they're heading toward true satisfaction. And instead of freedom, it's slavery. Instead of enlightenment, it's darkness, right? They're headed to condemnation because the wisdom of this world deceives people. It doesn't bring light and life to them. Notice verse 20, there's a third characteristic, I think, of this self-deception, and that is that they think they can be successful without God's wisdom. 20, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless, they're vain or ineffective, right? Because they're fundamentally wrong-headed, their plans and pathway will prove futile. I mean, you know, you know the images, right? It's the house built on the sand. Looks great till the storm comes and then it collapses. It's the way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is destruction. That's what Proverbs says. So they think they're moving in the right direction and they're actually headed toward destruction. It's gaining, to use the words of Jesus, it's gaining the whole world and losing your own soul, right? Their reasonings are, hey, this is the way to the good life. This is the way to prosperity. This is the way to success. This is the way to happiness. And, and it's, it's an end that is futile and destruction. And they're going to it completely deceiving themselves. They keep telling themselves that this is the way to go. And they're convinced of it. And, and, and since it's the wisdom of this age, all of the self-deceived feed one another's deception. Right? They're all, they're all sort of whistling down the pathway away from God, patting each other on the back thinking that they've discovered the way, the truth. They are it. And at some point, they're going to awaken to the fact that they've built a house that cannot stand. They've chosen a path that leads to destruction. They have gained everything in this world, but they've lost their soul. And it's the self-deceptiveness of that that is the danger. Right? And again, the key here, verse 18, is in this age and verse 19 of this world, they have too narrow of a perspective. They are too short-sighted, right? While they're looking at things and, and, and constructing what they believe is their wisdom, they are excluding things from the picture that if they were included in the picture would completely change their interpretation. Right? You've, you've seen these kind of gags that people play, right? You, 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 can, you can only see a part of the picture. And so you have the idea that this is the way it is. I and mean, one of the funniest ones I, you know, is the, is the little baby that's like, 
looking like someone stepping on its head, and then all of a sudden you zoom out, and it's a completely different scene, right? So, so here's the problem with the wisdom of this world. It's so zoomed in that it has lost a God-centered kind of perspective. It's so short-sighted that it can't see past the immediate, and therefore its interpretation is completely wrong, but they're absolutely convinced of it. That's the self-deception. Right? And, and I could, I mean, I could walk through illustration after illustration of how this world has completely twisted and mangled the perspective of things to feed our desire to be liberated from the authority of God. Because that's really what it comes down to. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So it's in a right relationship of acknowledging God and his authority that we come to understand things. And when I reject his authority in the pursuit of my autonomy and my liberation, I keep feeding lies to myself to think it's gonna be all right. That this is right, that this is okay, this is justifiable. And, and it looks like wisdom because it has the applause and the approval of other people who are self-deceived. But it doesn't have God's approval. And it ultimately will result in, in disaster. So, so why does, what does Paul say to them in light of this? I mean, his concern that they not be deceived. And so he issues this very blunt call. Look in verse 18. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, here it is, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. He must become foolish. So here's something you probably wouldn't think you'd find in the Bible. Become a fool. Right? But really, the way we probably would understand is, is go, you must become foolish. Right, because what Paul means here is foolish according to this age. Foolish in the sight of the world, but certainly not foolish before God because we actually see what he says. You must become foolish so that you can become wise. So, so he's actually calling us to recognize uh, that, that the kind of foolishness we have to embrace is actually a foolishness as the world judges it, not foolish before God. And I think what he's really after is the, the antidote to their arrogance. He's effectively saying, you need to humble yourself before God. You need to humble yourself before God. Become foolish. Don't be wise in this age. Don't, don't cling to the wisdom of this world. You need to humble yourself before God. Become foolish. Right? So, so the foolishness here, just to make sure we're really clear about it, the foolishness here is 
You're foolish if you're judged according to the world's standards, right? If, if the world is the judge, then you would be counted as foolish. Again, go back to chapter one and verse 23. We didn't look at that one yet, but here's, here's the backdrop of what he's saying. 123, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Look at verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. So the foolishness about which he's talking is actually the kind of label the world puts on it, right? It's the foolishness of God. It's foolishness in the world's perception. So, so you have to be prepared right? You have to be prepared to become foolish. That is, let the world think you're foolish. You have to be prepared for that. And, and so it's the, the standard of the world would con- call you foolish, but the kind of foolish he wants is also aligned with God's foolishness, right? In the context of these chapters, it's a foolishness you're, you're, you're described as a fool by the word because you've embraced what is called the foolishness of God. You, you've actually received the message of God and embraced it. So the foolishness of the message preached has been received by you and therefore is to you in the language of chapter one, the wisdom of God and the power of God. I mean, that God's foolishness is stronger than man's strength and is, is wiser than man's wisdom. So he's saying, this is the, this is the answer. Okay. You're deceiving yourself into thinking that, that if you're wise in this world, then you're truly wise. If that's what you think, then you need to become a fool. You need to reject that wisdom and accept God's wisdom because God's foolishness is wiser than the world's wisdom. You need to, you need to yield to God's. You need to accept God's. You need to take God's wisdom as the higher standard. I think the primary, uh, the primary point he's talking about is the message of the cross, right? Because the cross is offensive to Jews and a, a, it, it's moronic to the Greeks because of what the cross signifies. I mean, both, both groups would reject the idea of a crucified king or Messiah, right? The Jews had, had looked at the hope of the Old Testament and completely excluded from it what the scriptures had said about the suffering servant. They, they, they understood, for instance, that Deuteronomy says, if anyone hangs on a tree, they're under a curse. How could the Messiah be under a curse? So to them, it was just, just offensive. It was a stumbling. You can't say that about the Messiah. That doesn't match what we think it has to be. 
So they were judging the message of the cross as foolish. And over here, I mean, the, the Greeks wanted power, Zeus and all the rulers of everything that was going on. And you're talking about a God who is crucified? We, we, want, we want gods of Olympian magnitude. And yours died on a cross? That's, that's foolish. That's moronic. Their, their definition of what God should be, of what a savior should be, their definition was wise. God's was foolish. And Paul's saying, become fools because this is actually the wisdom of God. Jesus did become a curse for us so that we could be rescued from the curse. Jesus did display his strength by dying so that he could conquer death. He could destroy the power of the devil, Hebrews 2 says, through death. So his weakness, as you're judging it, is actually the display of his strength. You've condemned this message and you need to realize that the message you're substituting is actual foolishness. Because anything that turns away from the revelation of God to the wisdom of men is foolish. So become a fool. Become a fool so you can be wise. Right? At the root of both of their rejection and the modern rejection is, is when you have a, a savior crucified, that is, he's becoming the curse for sin, that says about us that our sin is so great, it deserves cursing, condemnation. So, so many people stumble over the concept of the atonement of Christ, that he actually became a substitute for sinners because their sin was so great, they could not atone for it themselves. There's nothing they could do to, to pay off the debt or satisfy the penalty. But God displayed a mercy that involved the second person of the triune God taking to himself a human nature so that as fully human, he could actually pay the penalty that we deserve. And lots of people will talk about, you know, Jesus and, and all kinds of stuff, but when they really sort of think about what the Bible says, about us wrapped up in what it says about him. They're like, whoa, time out. I didn't deserve anything. I didn't do anything that deserves hell. I mean, I'm not so bad that, that I would be in risk of the lake of fire. that I'm under condemnation from God because my sin? Hang, hang on a second here. Right, see at that point, the wisdom of man goes, 
well, you know, God's, uh, God's not actually a God who's angry and judges sin. And, and we're not so bad that we could actually spend eternity in hell. I mean, that's no, no, this is no, wait, wait, wait. This is just really, it's just a display of how much God loves us. And, and what's really at stake is not that we're being judged or Christ died as a blood sacrifice for us, but that it just shows us how much he loved us. And so once we'd really understand how much we're loved, then we'd really respond with love. And you can have forms of Christianity that have completely denied the whole purpose of Christ's death and call it wisdom. Well, the whole idea of, a, of, of the father giving his son on the cross. I mean, folks, it's literally been called in our day. That's cosmic child abuse. We got to get past that kind of old, bloody, violent depiction of the cross and recognize that, that really it's the, it's about the worth of us and us coming to realize that so then we can fully develop. And it has an appearance of wisdom if you've accepted the premises of the fallen world. And if that's what you believe, here's what Paul would say. Become a fool. Accept the cross as an atonement for sin because Christ died in the place of sinners, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. He bore his sin, our sins, in his body on the tree. He became the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction of the wrath of God against them. Become foolish. Humble yourself before the cross, acknowledging that you desperately need exactly what Jesus did. And what you need to do is accept what Jesus did not try to morph it into something that feeds our ego and our autonomy, autonomy, but to become fools so that we can become wise. The gospel is the wisdom of God. So we need to become foolish, recognize that there is an eternal penalty that had to be paid and could only be paid by the Son of God because we can't pay it ourselves, and that the gift of salvation is something received. It's not a work achieved. I have nothing to offer to God for my salvation. And since Christ died on the cross to provide the way of salvation, there is only one way. There's not plan B. There's not path options outside of that. And you know what? That that's foolish by our world. That's foolish. What do you mean there's only one way? What do you mean that there's only, only salvation in Christ? What about? And, and all of the objections against it will be short-lived because they're just of this age and of this world. We need to humble ourselves before God. 
And I think that verse helps us understand exactly what that means. We have to be willing to accept the rejection of the world, right? Verse 19 or 18, he must become foolish. That's the reason he says it that way is because if you actually, and he's, let's, let's put it right in the Corinthian context, there are people at Corinth who are wanting to change the message of the cross. They, wanna, they want to have something more palatable, more impressive for the world and culture in which they are. And so they want to not look foolish, right? They want to not look bad in the world's eyes. And, and so when Paul says, become foolish, he's saying, if you're going to follow Christ, you have to accept the fact that the world is going to reject you. You just, you just have to accept that. I mean, and that shouldn't be shocking to us. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Peter will say, I mean, that's Jesus just before he leaves. Peter says, just before Peter leaves, right? It shouldn't surprise you that this has come upon you, right? There should be nothing shocking to Christians that people who reject the faith consider us foolish. I mean, that's, that, that shouldn't be a shock because if you're going to be in step with God, you're going to be out of step with the world. And if you're in step with the world, you are out of step with God. You, you can't actually have both because the world's wisdom is contrary to God. To long for the world's acceptance is to worship its approval. It, it is, in fact, to desire something about which we may boast. And chapter one has gone after that with, with great abandon, right? The cross, the cross puts us in a position where our only boast can be in the Lord. And if I want the approval of the world. Hey, I've got a message for you Greeks that is really wise. It's not the foolishness of the cross. Let me tell you the sophistication of this and let me display it for you in the powerful rhetoric of all the Greek speakers. What you're worshiping is the approval of those who've rejected Christ and you want it so that you can boast and, and, and that's, that's the symptom of a heart that is actually and truly foolish in the sight of God. Because the wisdom of this world, verse 19 says, is foolishness before God. The only assessment that matters is God's. And to follow Christ faithfully means we confess him openly and join him, in the words of Hebrews 13, we join him outside the camp bearing his reproach. So, so any call to be a, a follower of Christ that doesn't call us out of the camp of the world and doesn't announce that we have to bear the reproach of Christ is actually some kind of betrayal of Christ himself. I mean, I think the first century Christian got this just 
somewhat intuitively because of the cross, right? The cross, the cross was not an emblem of devotion. It wasn't a charm for their neck. I'm not saying, don't hear me say it's wrong to do. I'm just saying it'd be like walking around with an electric chair around your neck or a guillotine. I mean, the cross was an instrument of execution reserved for the lowest of criminals in the Roman Empire. It wasn't something that was like, wow, this is sort of cool. It was, this is reproach. I'm identifying with someone who was murdered as a criminal. That's my Lord. I'm going to identify with him. And if that means I have to leave the camp to do that, if I have to walk away from all that I've previously valued or all that I may have aspired to, I turn my back on that to follow Jesus, then the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back. Right? That's what Paul's saying. Become fools. Identify with them. You'll never win the approval of the world with half measures and concessions anyway. Right? I mean, I don't, I don't know how many times Christendom needs to make the same mistake before it finally wakes up to realize we're never going to satisfy them unless we fully abandon the faith. Right? So, okay, let's, well, let's make this concession and then we can, we can dialogue with them and, well, okay, we, now we not even make another concession, and but we're, we've almost won them. Well, if we make another one, and pretty soon we're actually embracing them, and we've abandoned Christ, right? And and it it's it's happening again and again and again because people, the scriptures are very clear. Our speech needs to be seasoned with salt and gracious. So don't hear me. Don't hear me, you know, be an idiot for Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you can't be so nice that you've abandoned Christ. You, you want to be nice and you betray Christ. It never works. It never actually accomplishes the objective all it does is reveal a heart of disloyalty to Christ. Right? I mean, if someone's, if someone's tearing my wife down and I decide, well, I, I sort of want to win them over, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to accept their terms. Right? And I, I may have won my friend, but I've, I've betrayed my wife. Right? And when someone goes, well, you know, what he wants is wrong. It's outdated. It doesn't fit with what we know about the modern world. It's, it actually, if you hold to what the scriptures say, you're a bigot or you're uh, judgmental or you're whatever. And so you go, well, yeah, I know some of that's a little harsh and all of that. I understand that, but, but let's, let's talk about it. I've effectively handed away my loyalty to God. 
I mean, how, how can I do that and think that's wise? Right? At some point, we have to say, let God be true and every man a liar. You know, if the world thinks we're foolish because we believe God, then so be it. So be it. Because the truth of God stands. And so we have to accept the rejection of the world. It's not that we want it necessarily, that we desire it, that we, we love it, but it is just reality. I cannot live to please those who've rejected my Lord and still be living to please my Lord. It's impossible. So Paul says, become foolish. Be willing to own that label if need be to be true to Christ because that's actually the path to true wisdom. And that means in becoming foolish, you're not only accepting the rejection of the world, but you're embracing the revelation of God's wisdom. You are humbly receiving what God has said as being true and authoritative. It is wisdom. Chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says, we do speak wisdom, but it's wisdom among those who are mature. And it's a wisdom that has come from God by the Spirit. And it's a wisdom that can only be recognized by the ministry of the Spirit. So accept it, embrace it, humbly receive the truth because the true wisdom is that. It's a reception of God's wisdom. We're not... We're not going, okay, God said this, and now I'm going to prove it. I'm going to guarantee it. I'm going to affirm it and, and demonstrate that it's true. No, we're, we're accepting. We're, we're receiving the truth of God. That's the stance of faith. We believe God's truth, and we hold to that truth without any mixture of error, by adding anything to it or subtracting something from it or distorting it in ways that are inconsistent with what God has said, we have to be willing to bow our knee to the truth of God. The, the rejection of God's truth by the world does not in any way diminish its truth or value. Right? I mean, you know, if I, I went next door to Maple Heights and told you I could jump off of it and, and, and thought that that was my truth, my truth is going to end up in a splat. Right? My rejection of it doesn't change it at all. I mean, my opinion of truth doesn't change truth. God's truth stands because it's anchored in God, who's the true and living God. And the right response of the creature to the creator is humble acceptance and reception of that truth. We believe him. We, we were willing to identify with him, no matter what the consequence of that is. So we have to recognize that. And it's so important because in this text, it's very clear what the consequences are, right? On the, 
negative side of it, embracing this world's wisdom is foolishness before God, verse 19. The wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, and it's self-deceived, chapter 18. So here, I mean, again, it's the irony of it. I mean, I, I remember one time having a conversation with a guy. He found out, you know, he, he was he, we were talking, and he found out where I went to school, and he said, how long did it take you to get over that? And I looked at him, I said, well, it depends on what you mean, because I may not be yet. But he, he was trying to essentially sort of shame me with some, you know, perception of things that I would then wilt under it. And I'm like, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know what your problem is, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like tuck my tail and run over to get your approval. And, and, and that's the way of the world. And, and we have to recognize that, that um, because that is the way of the world, the world will congratulate itself. The world will honor itself. The world will hold itself up as the standard and beacon of truth. And to be the person who doesn't accept that is going to be the position of being judged a fool but there's coming a day of an enormous reversal. When the wisdom of this world will be exposed to be the foolishness that it really is when God passes judgment on it. When he catches the wise in his wisdom. When it's exposed that all of that vanity was useless. Right, that's that's the downside. You might you might be celebrated in the parade, but the end of that parade is going off a cliff. And the joy of that celebration will be short-lived. Don't trade away eternal wisdom for the shallow and short-lived wisdom of this world. And, and here's, here's the warning for all of God's people because this is written to the church of Corinth. Don't get sucked into the effort to win the approval of the world by accommodating its wisdom and trying to avoid the tag of foolish by the world. Because there's, there's, there's just no way that it will be satisfied. Never has, never will. Right? When you talk the authority of the scripture, the world can't handle that. When you talk about the exclusivity of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the world mocks that. The world considers that to be uh, a, a, a flawed conception. So your choice is accept the Bible or reject the Bible. Right? That's, that's really a choice. And we live in a day where morality taught in the scriptures is being judged as foolish. 
right? It's being judged as foolish. And if you hold to it, you're going to have to be willing to bear the scorn of that. That's the reality of it. And you get people who are doing the half-step measure, right? Well, so I know what the Bible says, but I hear what you're saying. So let's meet on a middle ground here somewhere. And we accept the world's terms. We accept the world's uh, concepts. All All of a sudden, we're talking in categories that the Bible never uses. Right, I'm, I'm just going to be a little blunt, right? But I, I, I steadfastly refuse to use the alphabet, and I'll tell you why. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go through it. Right, L, B. What's that B? Bisexual. So I'm gonna accept the standing that people who can engage in sexual immorality with either men or women is an identity that I have to go, well, I understand you are that. Why would any Christian accept that? Why would we say a legitimate identity is to be a fornicator with either men or women? I I cannot come up with one other than we want to be nice. We, we want to engage in the conversation on their terms. And I would suggest to you, that's because we don't want to be perceived as foolish. Right? And, and it's all, there's a, a, a thousand ways in which the wisdom of this world is enticing believers to surrender the authority of God. Whether that's at the front lines of what the gospel is or the downstream lines of what human nature is, what it means to be a follower of Christ, right? The the way of this world is to try and squeeze us into its mold. And the scriptures say we're not to be conformed, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So we don't accept pagan premises. We stand on the authority of God's word and be ready to reject the world's wisdom and embrace God's foolishness because that, end of verse 18, is how you become truly wise. So Paul doesn't just go, all right, hey, it's been a great debate with you Corinthians about this. He he sort of pulls out the Elijah card. Choose you this day whom you will serve. If God is God, serve him. And he's saying to these Corinthians, if, if you want to play around with all this wisdom that you think is wise, you're going to become foolish in God's eyes. It's going to become the snare that catches you. It's going to prove useless in terms of building the church at Corinth. So become fools. Become fools. 
so you can be truly wise. Let's pray together. Lord, please help us to recognize the danger of accommodation, that that it's often not the overt threat that will undo us, but it's the subtle compromise and half-step to accommodate those who reject your word. Lord, it's not going to get any easier to stand for the truth, to, to believe in the authority of your word, the exclusivity of the gospel, the call to live our lives under your rule. So give us true wisdom that recognizes that your word is right, your way is perfect, that our hope is built on eternity, not temporal success or satisfaction or approval. And Lord, please, if if any of us need to be humbled before you over this issue of the cross, would you please help them see your wisdom there? And Lord, we pray that you might help all of us not to be deceived, not to think ourselves more higher than we ought, but just be followers of the risen Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.